Good morning, everyone. Okay, good. It's all working. Uh, we will miss Naomi, partly for our technical skills. Barney, in Barney's absence, Chris and I were standing at the sound desk, sort of moving things up and down with absolutely no success until Naomi came along and sorted us out. Well, we're carrying on in Acts this morning, and I'm not sure what title's in the bulletin, but this is the title I've chosen for our passage, Paul's Travel Essentials, things that, were, that he took with him wherever he went and were essential to him. There's a famous tagline many years ago from a very successful advertising campaign, and the tagline was this, don't leave home without it. Does anyone recognize that? Karen? American Express, yes, I, I didn't know it, but anyway, as I was researching for this passage, that, that, that apparently was very important. And what they're saying, of course, is whatever else you take with you, whatever else you forget, don't forget the American Express card, because if you have that, everything else will be fine. You'll be able to meet all your needs, you'll be able to do everything you want, as long as you've got American Express. Well, I don't have it, but I do have travel essentials for when I travel with ambassadors, and you know, I always want to remember the important things if I'm going away to do some coaching training. I've got to bring my football kit and all that kind of stuff and a laptop for the classroom sessions and everything else. But as I'm stepping out the door, I have a little mental checklist that says, well, whatever else I forget, I must have these things. And of course, number one, if I can grab it out, my passport, trusty whatever color that is. Hopefully it doesn't change to blue, but it might. This is my passport. You can't go anywhere without that. So I've got to have my passport. Then, of course, now my second essential is my wallet. It is empty, as usual, but has the cards, and that's really all you need. And then the third essential in today's world is, of course, your mobile phone. You can't go anywhere without this now because that's your means of staying in touch and uh, arranging your things and checking emails and all those kind of things. And really, I, I have those three essentials which matches what I'm going to talk about this morning. But I have to admit, I have one more essential, and that's my packet of tissues. I never leave home without it, as Natasha can tell you. Wherever I go, and I have a panic if I suddenly am on the bus to Heathrow, I forgot the tissues. Drat. Um, so those are my essentials, those three things. And in this passage, I think we find three traveling essentials that Paul gives us. But just a quick recap before we get there. Oh, I forgot to say yes, American Express. Paul, if you remember, had been coming to Jerusalem with the goal of bringing this gift to the church there from the, from the Gentile churches he'd planted. So he's bringing a gift to the poor in Jerusalem, and he's well-received. But of course, because of his reputation, the church in Jerusalem says, actually, we'd like you to go through this process of cleansing and purification just to prove to everyone you're not really saying that Jews shouldn't obey the law anymore. So Paul does that. And as he's in the temple, as part of the process, some Jews from Asia see him, and Andrew took us through this, and of course they assume immediately that Paul is there with Gentiles, who they've also seen. And so there's a big, huge uproar, and he's beaten, arrested by the Romans. And then last week, Chris was taking us through that, that moment where he stood on the steps and gave his testimony, and how that led to further uproar, and then the Roman soldiers coming and sort of putting him under guard. And as he tells them he's a Roman citizen, they don't beat him, they wonder what to do with him. And so, effectively, although he's not bound, he's not chained, he's not in prison, he's sort of, I suppose you could say, detained for further questioning. And that's where we find him today 
in our passage. And so the commander who's determined to find out what's going on says, well, I've no idea what they're on about, but I need to talk with the Jewish leaders. And so Paul is put before the Sanhedrin. And that's where we find the passage today. And so Paul's three travel essentials, we're going to start with the first one, travel essential number one, which starts right straight as we begin in chapter 23. It says, Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, my brothers, I've fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. A good conscience is at the top of Paul's travel list. Let's put the, it's a priority for him. Now, you may be thinking, actually, is it really that important? This is the first time in the New Testament the word conscience is used. It may not seem that big a deal. You know, we're all used to uh, knowing in our conscience what's right and every now and again bending the rules a little bit. Uh, I have an English conscience. My wife has a Mexican conscience. And every now and again, it's a clash of consciences. Learning to, well, we're still learning to adjust on some things. But is it really that big a deal? Well, I think it is. I think a good conscience is a priority for Paul. Here's a few reasons why. 20 out of the 30 times that conscience is mentioned in the New Testament are in Paul's letters. It was important to him. And in fact, the two times it's mentioned in Acts, it's actually both Paul speaking, telling people he's, he's had a good conscience before God, before men. Think about Paul's letters. That he writes, we don't have time to look at every mention of it. But in his letter to, to, to Timothy, his first letter to Timothy, that's where conscience is mentioned most frequently, proportionally. And it's, we know it's the letter he's sending to his young disciple saying, here's what's important. Let's look at what he says. 1 Timothy 1.5 The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. I mean, as we're reading that, we're not surprised Paul is talking about love. He wrote 1 Corinthians 13, after all. Paul is all about love. We're not surprised Paul is talking about a pure heart. He's always telling the churches he planted, flee from sexual immorality, keep a pure heart, be holy. We're not surprised to see faith there. Paul is the apostle of faith. But right in that list is a good conscience. And this, remember, is Paul's words to Timothy. Here's what's important. I'm about to depart this earth. Here's what's important. The aim of our charge is love. Where does that come from? A pure heart, sure, but also a good conscience. It's a priority for Paul. And in fact, as he goes on in that, the very next verse, he says, some people have neglected their conscience and these things and have started to wander away. And a little bit further on, Verses 18 and 19, he's telling, reminding Timothy about the prophecies. And then he says, you need to wage the good warfare, holding faith. Yep, we understand that. And a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. And, and the this that they've rejected is a good conscience. It's not just a minor thing. A good conscience, if we begin to neglect that, we begin to little have a few fudges here and there, that's essentially saying we're setting course, even if it's ever so slightly, for something that ends up in the shipwreck of our faith. That's a power, those are powerful words, the shipwreck. This is not a light thing. And Paul says, as he finishes, as he writes his last letter, Uh, go back a bit. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child. As he's writing to Timothy, sorry, I'm 
getting a bit lost here. He says, I thank God, the very last letter, he says, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience. It was so important to him. And as as I already showed you, Martin Luther also has a famous quote about conscience. I cannot and will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand, I can do no other, so help me God. It wasn't just Martin Luther's conviction about the truth of justification by faith that was important. It was the fact that with his own conscience, he couldn't keep quiet about it. He could have just kept that for himself and said, well, that's great, I'm saved. But his conscience wouldn't let him turn back on it. And that's why we had the Reformation, which we know very well. If we neglect our conscience, we're neglecting something that should be a priority for us. So what does it even mean to say we have a good conscience? Well, we kind of this understanding that a conscience is sort of that personal guide to our behavior. That's wrong, that's right. I suppose when you see a new newspaper cartoon, there's usually a good angel on one shoulder and a bad angel on the other. Or some kind of internal dialogue saying, do this, don't do that. Our conscience is talking to us. And it guides our behavior. We feel comfortable if we're staying within what we know to be right. There's something that's saying, oh, that's wrong. That's when we get a bad conscience. But for Paul, it's more than just that kind of inner dialogue, that inner feeling. And good, a good conscience is not only essential for Paul, it's both public and private. And I'm going to try and explain what I mean by that. I'm just trying to keep everything with a P in terms of conscience this morning. If, if you get lost, come and ask me later what I'm talking about. But a good conscience is both public and private. What does Paul say to the high priest, to the, to the Sanhedrin? He says, I fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. In the ESV, it puts it like this. Brothers, up to this day, I've lived my life with a clear conscience. Both versions, as, as the NIV says, I've fulfilled my duty, and the ESV says, I've lived my life. They're trying to translate a word that means to live out your life as a good citizen. That's what it would have brought to mind his hearers. This is a public demonstration. In other words, there's a public sphere to a good conscience. There's a public element to having a good conscience. So it's public. But it's also private because it's before God. We can have an outward facing good life, but God sees the private, the hearts, what goes on. So it's both public and private. And in fact, in the very next chapter where Paul talks about this again, I think it helps us to see what I'm trying to say here. He says, I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God, private, before man, public, that outward-facing element. What does it mean, then, to have this public aspect? Well, faith and belief in the ancient world was never just a private thing, like we kind of have it today in the UK. Paul is essentially saying to this group, these group of leaders and the Roman commander there, he was confident that no one looking at his life could find anything wrong in the way he'd lived out in regards to the Roman laws or the Jewish laws. He was saying, I've lived before God with a clear conscience. There's nothing you can find that will say, I've broken the Jewish law. And that's perhaps what provoked the high priest so much. Because in their minds, Paul was the worst blasphemer possible. He was telling people in their minds to break the law, that they didn't need to follow the law. And he was promoting Jesus as God. So the high priest orders the person standing next to him, we read in verse 2, to strike Paul's mouth. And Paul 
angry at that. We'll check on that in a minute. But the high priest reacts so much because Paul is claiming that publicly he has followed God's law. And as we read through Acts, we see time and time again, Paul's innocence is actually made very clear. In this very passage, the Sadducees and the Pharisees who made up the ruling body, the Sanhedrin, get in a big fight because the Pharisees actually say, well, we don't actually find anything wrong with him, verse 9. What if an angel or a spirit has spoken to him? In other words, there was nothing in his behavior they could point to. And as you look further on in the passage, uh, as the Roman commander sending this letter, which is stretching the truth, to put it mildly, as we've followed the story, he didn't find out Paul was a Roman citizen and rescue him because of that. That was a circumstance. But as he shows what is not to have a good conscience, he actually says, this guy has done nothing wrong. We can read it, verse 29, I found that the accusations had to do with questions about their law, but there was no charge against him that deserved death or imprisonment. And as we'll go through the next chapters, we'll keep finding that, that Paul was publicly innocent. He had not broken the law. So there's this public element to what it means to have a good conscience. And not only that, as I mentioned a, a minute ago, when Paul blows public by actually, in a sense, essence, cursing the high priest back when, when the high priest tells someone to strike him, he says, verse 3, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. He wasn't a, exactly a shrinking violet, was he? But that, when, when the people around him pointed out, actually you're saying that about the high priest, he immediately owned up to his wrong. He'd done it in good conscience because he didn't know that was the high priest. But when he found out, he put it right. He says, brothers, verse 5, I didn't realize that he was the high priest. As it's written, do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. And you can just contrast these two characters. Here is the high priest on the one hand, who should be this most upright and holy of persons. But actually, we know from his, the, the, the contemporary historians, he was a scheming, ruthless, fairly evil person. And here's Paul, that everyone is claiming is a lawbreaker. And Paul breaks the law unknowingly. The high priest breaks the law knowingly. He was the high priest. He knew very well that he was to judge fairly. And he was not doing that. And yet Paul is the one who puts it right, not the high priest. He continued to maintain a good conscience publicly, unlike this character, this high priest. And if you're interested in these kind of things, actually what Paul says to him comes true later on. He's, put, he's killed by revolutionaries who don't particularly like the way he is trying to lead the people. So Paul maintains this public aspect of his good conscience. And this is what he says. It's not just about the Jewish law maintaining that. It's not just about the Roman law. He's guiltless there. It's also about how he lives out his very life and his ministry. He tells oops, this in public. This is our boast. 2 Corinthians 1.12. Indeed, this is our boast, the testimony of our conscience. We have behaved in the world with frankness and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and all the more towards you. The testimony of his conscience is that he's acted appropriately and with God's grace in his ministry to the people around him. That's what it means to have a good conscience publicly. Well, what does it mean to have a good conscience privately? 
this is probably where we tend to go when we think about conscience. We know that we can fool others. We know that outwardly we can appear one way, and yet inwardly and behind closed doors we're acting another way. And this is why neglecting conscience is such a fearful thing. Because as we saw, if we live like that, we begin on that path to shipwreck. And these verses always strike at my heart anyway. Galatians 6, 7 and 9, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows, whether it's to the flesh or to the spirit. You and I can come here on the Sunday morning with the Sunday morning face, and we can look upright, but God really knows what's going on. God knows everything. And we need that reminder, as Hebrews tells us, that before God, we stand naked and laid bare to his eyes, and that we have to give an account to him. So our conscience is not just before man. It's before God, as we've read. And as if we go on this gradual process of ignoring conscience, then it gets to the point where Paul tells Timothy that some people have ignored it so much and neglected it and rejected it that he says their consciences are seared as with a hot iron. No longer any sensitivity. No longer able to feel something. That's the path we go on if we begin to neglect and ignore our conscience. Paul even says that's part of his gospel in Romans 2. He says, according to my gospel, God, through Jesus Christ, will judge the secret thoughts of all. I don't know if you've ever thought about having your thoughts projected on the wall in the same way the PowerPoint's going. Ho- hopefully it's not when will he stop. But if we had our thoughts projected on the wall, how ashamed would we be? I was thinking about this because uh, as as you travel these days on, on the long distance flights, they give you your own little TV screen, and uh, you can sit there and choose from their selection, not like the old days where you sort of looked in the distance and there was some 10-year-old movie. You have a lot of choice. And because I like a little bit of action and adventure, I found a film that looked action-y and adventure But after about five minutes, I was sort of sitting there. You have to realize on an airplane... You've got someone sitting there and someone sitting there and someone sitting you know, behind you and you can see everyone else's screens. And after about five minutes, I was like, my public conscience will not allow me to continue watching this film. And so I just had to switch it off. But I was thinking about it. You know, it's good to have that public conscience, but what about when I'm at home? Would I find that film appropriate just because no one's watching me? Hopefully not. Our conscience is both public and private. We were talking about this in our community group on Wednesday, how... Often, as parents, we find that we're better parents out in public than we are at home. It shouldn't be that way. Our conscience is both public and private. We have to have an account before God who sees everything. Now, don't feel condemned. God has given us the way to deal with it. Just like Paul did confessing it, 1 John 1, nine tells us, confess your sins and he will forgive you. He's faithful and just to do that. So our conscience should be a priority. A good conscience should be a priority. It should be public. It should be private. And I think it's especially key and essential for Paul because a good conscience is his platform for the gospel. It's his platform for the gospel. Paul was able to stand confidently before that group because he had a good conscience. He knew they couldn't find anything against him. And so he's able to proclaim to the Roman authorities, to the Jewish authorities, the gospel confidently. 
And I think if we don't have a good conscience, we begin to lose even the desire to share our faith because we feel convicted that we're not even living it out. Now, Chris reminded us last week of that famous apologetics verse. Anyone remember it that we always go to? Chris is nodding at the back. The other Chris. 1 Peter 3.15. In your heart set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have with gentleness and respect. Brilliant verse. And hopefully we'll live that out. Does anyone know what the next four words are? Oh, Chris does. Yes, keeping a clear conscience. If we don't keep a clear conscience, that ability to share and to give a reason is damaged because we're no longer confident in our own faith, in our own walk. Keeping a clear conscience, a good conscience, is a platform for us to share the gospel. Paul tells the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 4.2, we've renounced the shameful things that one hides. We refuse to practice cunning or to falsify God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we commend ourselves to the conscience of everyone in the sight of God. A good conscience is a platform for the gospel. Then the last thing I'm going to say about conscience this morning, about this travel essential, is that a good conscience needs to be perfected. And again, I'm trying to keep the P's going. We could say a better word would be a good conscience needs to be trained or even calibrated for you engineering mechanical types. It needs to be set to the right level. Jeremiah tells us that there's nothing quite as deceitful and tricky as the human heart. Our own consciences, if they're not trained in the right way, can actually be fine with behavior that's Un, un, that is not right before God, just because we don't know any better. Our, con, our consciences can be conditioned by the society around us to accept things we shouldn't. Doug Larson, a, a newspaper writer, says, a lot of people mistake a short memory for a clear conscience. You know, if we forget about it, it didn't happen, I'm fine. So we need our consciences perfected or calibrated the right way. And of course, some people are on the other end of, of the scale. They're so hung up about everything, they can't move without having a guilty conscience. And a lot of what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians, when he mentions conscience several times in chapters 8 to 10, is people who are struggling with those who have a strong conscience and a weak conscience. We don't have time to go into that this morning, but it'll be worth unpacking a bit more in your community groups. But I think Paul gives us three perfectors, if you like, of our conscience, three things that help calibrate it the right way so that actually our conscience is in line with what is pleasing to God. And these are God's Holy Spirit. Paul talks about in Romans the fact that the Holy Spirit confirms to his conscience that what he's doing is right, that, what he's, that he's telling the truth. We need God's word that digs in, as Hebrews tells us. It's a living and active. It, it unlocks the very heart, the very thoughts and attitudes, getting down deep there. And we need God's church. We need God's Spirit, God's word, God's church. Alone, we can easily fool ourselves into thinking something's right that isn't. Or we can be hung up about something we don't need to be. But as a body, we can come together and learn what it is that is God. The Holy Spirit, speaking through the word, in and among the church, calibrates our conscience to what pleases God. So this is Paul's first travel 
essential, a good conscience. We shouldn't neglect it. It should be a priority for us as well. As we carry on down the story, we don't have time to look at everything that's going on, this fight between the Sadducees and the Pharisees over Paul's claim to believe in the resurrection, the fact that the Sadducees didn't believe that. But it gets to the point, as we heard, that there's such an uproar uproar, that uh, literally it says the commander thought Paul was going to be torn apart. And this, these remember the leaders of Israel behaving in this way. And so he sends the soldiers in again, and Paul is now under a bit more forceful house arrest, if you like, in the barracks. Partly for his own safety, of course. So if Paul had a travel essential of a good conscience, then his second travel essential is great courage. And we see this in verse 11. At the end of all this hullabaloo that's happened, Paul is now stuck in these barracks. The following night we read, the Lord stood by Paul, near Paul, and said, take courage. Remember Paul's situation at this point. He's been beaten. Remember that he'd had these plans, as we read in Romans 15, he'd written to the Romans, said, I've got these great plans. I'm just going to pop to Jerusalem, take a gift with me, they're going to love me there, and then I'm coming to you, and you're going to be a blessing to me, and I'm going to be a blessing to you, and you're going to send me on mission to Spain. That was Paul's grand plan. And here he is, stuck in Jerusalem, beaten up, abandoned by the church he'd come to bring gifts to. We don't read of any visits from the church. We don't read of any intercession on his behalf as we do of Peter and the others when they're in jail. Doesn't mean it didn't happen, but from Paul's perspective, he never heard about it. And here he is, stuck, his plans in tatters, no trip to Rome, no new mission in Spain, fearing for his life. And at that moment, the Lord Jesus comes and stands beside him. Isn't that an amazing verse? The Lord Jesus stood beside him and said, take courage. What an amazing moment. And what is this courage for? It's not so that he doesn't feel bad about himself. It's because he has a further mission. As you've testified about me here in Jerusalem, you are going to now testify also about me in Rome. What an encouragement for Paul. He was still going to get to Rome where he desired to go and God still had plans for him. But that take courage is essential because there is a cost sharing the gospel as we've heard from, from the people we've been praying for this morning. And in our own context, are we willing to cross that pain threshold that we talked about a few weeks ago from Rico Tice's book on evangelism? That are we willing to, to take the cost of the embarrassment, take the cost of the friends who may be turned backs on us because we're being a bit too public in our speech there's a cost but Jesus says take courage in fact as you look through the book of Acts bold proclamation that's the hallmark of the believers throughout the book and it's not natural it's not that they were super disciples they were told that's going to happen one way only when the Holy Spirit comes upon you right when we started back in the book of Acts Acts 1 8 You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. And we see that time and time again. Acts 4, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Without God's Spirit inspiring us, empowering us, we can't have that bold speech. But just think, we have the same promises that Paul received from Jesus as he stood by him there. 
He tells us, Matthew 28, the Great Commission, go, go into all the world. And what's the promise at the end? I will be with you to the ends of the earth. We have that same promise. He tells them in Matthew 10, don't worry about what you've got to say when people pull you up for questioning. The Holy Spirit will give you the words. And if, as we look forward in Paul's life, jumping forward a few years to, the, to what he writes to Timothy, he says this, at my first defense, not this one, but the first one in Rome, and he says, everybody else abandoned me, but what happened? The Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. Almost the last words Paul is writing to Timothy and that we have in the New Testament is Paul saying, Jesus was there again, standing by me as I, as I testified, so that everyone could hear the gospel. Now we don't see him today, but as we step out, as we share, Jesus is standing by you, and he is saying, take courage, because it's not easy. It's not something natural, but he's there with us, saying, take courage. So we've seen two travel essentials, a good conscience and great courage. And the third and the last one, which will be very brief, is this, God's care. And in fact, that's not something we can uh, take with us by ourselves, but it's something that God promises us. As we've seen, God comes to Paul, Jesus comes to Paul and says, you're going to testify about me in Rome. That was a promise that God was going to care for Paul all the way to that final destination. And just think about the story we've had read to us. Paul is in a lot of trouble. He's being held by the Romans, but as, read through, as Andrew read through the story for us, we discover there's a plot against Paul. And it's not just one or two people. There are more than 40 men, with daggers it says, who are determined to kill Paul. Now, if you have 40 guys after you with daggers in a town like Jerusalem, your days are numbered. They're going to get to you somehow or some way. So Paul was in a lot of trouble. But just somehow, we don't know how, Paul's nephew, who we never read about before or after, finds out about this plot. And he goes to tell Paul, and Paul tells him to go tell the commander, centurion, and the centurion tells the commander. And what does the commander do? Well, he takes immediate action, because this is, after all, a Roman citizen, even if he's a bit of an odd one. And he wants to keep him safe. So we read, that he says, get ready, a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen. Paul, all of a sudden, has an armed guard of 470 soldiers. Quite a match for 40 men, however determined they are. What does he say? I'll take them, make sure Paul gets on a horse. We want to keep him safe as he travels. Leave this very night. Don't hang around. So even if the men had spies there, watching and looking for their opportunity, there was absolutely no way through 470 men as they took Paul out. And we read that they escort him as far as, I never remember the name of it, Antipatris, Antipatris in verse 31 it tells us. And there the foot soldiers, the 400 of them, returned after having done this first march through the night. And Paul travels on with the 70 horsemen because they were pretty much out of danger at that point. And Paul ends this chapter. Where is he? Well, he's ordered that Paul be kept under guard in Herod's palace. Being under guard works two ways. You don't get out, but nobody gets in to kill you either. So just think about this amazing fact that the only place where Paul could be safe 
was precisely where God had arranged for him to be, under Roman protection. He had no idea that all this was actually going to keep him safe. He was just seeing that he had been beaten, he had been pulled apart, he was now in prison, his plans were shattered, but actually he was right where God needed to be to keep him safe and to send him on to Rome to testify, not just to the church there, but he says to all the Gentiles. So God uses this whole situation showing his care and protection for Paul. And we can be thankful that we don't face the pressure Paul faced or the pressure that people like Asya Bibi face. We can be thankful for that. But we do know that whatever we're facing, God's care is there. And as we travel, as we live our lives before God with a good conscience, with, his, with, with that conviction, we have that conviction that he is with us, caring for us. There's not something we can do to take God's care with other trust that he is caring for us, even when we don't see it. We have that same assurance. So in summary, we've had three travel essentials, and of course those travel essentials are life essentials. We're on a journey together, and we can't neglect a good conscience. We need great courage as we're called to share the gospel, but we can be confident in that, that we will experience God's care. So those three things, a good conscience, great courage, God's care, don't leave home without them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we